Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. And today's theme is 10 Distinctives of Emotionally Healthy Preaching. 10 Distinctives of Emotionally Healthy Preaching. Uh, this week will be a part one. Now, EH Discipleship offers some distinctives, some unique applications to preachings that has emerged uh, for me over the last two and a half decades. And so what I've done is I framed uh, 10 questions that I ask myself and others around preaching and a way for me to kind of lay this out for you to for you to bring to bear on your own teaching and preaching. Now, these 10 questions guide us to ensure that we're making room for God to do his work of transformation in us in the preaching process and then preaching in a way that actually leads to transformation in other people as well. Now, of course, I, I think these principles are helpful in teaching scripture in any context, whether it's in classes, seminars, workshops, etc. Uh, but I want to focus in particular around preaching, and then you can make the applications to other venues. But before I launch into the 10 distinctives and the questions, uh, let me give you a brief overview of just the three distinct phases of my own preaching development and how, how I came into this. And so pre, uh, you know, EH discipleship, when I began our church in 1987, uh, I had done a little bit of preaching prior to that, mostly in teaching contexts um, within InterVarsity Christian Fellowship as a parachurch worker. Uh, but when I was, we started the church for the last, first eight and a half years, uh, you know, as I was preaching, uh, and I understand I had years of inductive Bible study under my belt. You know, I loved scripture, had a great seminary education in terms of the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and hermeneutics. And and so as I taught those early years, uh, I did books of the Bible, which I've continued to do over the years. I spent three years, for example, in the book of Matthew. And I did series on things like stewardship and knowing God's will. And I was always very concerned about you know good exegesis and not putting words in God's mouth. Uh, as one seminary professor said so eloquently and well. But in my early years, I was trying to figure out my own style, and it, it was difficult. I, I, what I didn't realize was how much of my struggle in preaching had to do with my own gaps in discipleship, in my own shallow discipleship. And I found that as God deepened me in my own discipleship with him, uh, my own relationship with him, it dramatically transformed my preaching. And so I like to call the second distinct phase uh, of my preaching development happened as I entered into what we call today Emotionally Healthy Discipleship in January of 1996. Uh, actually, two years prior to that, I actually had begun to uh, integrate some of the themes of EH Discipleship, like grief and loss, as I began to, to go into these areas uh, in my own personal life. But it was in January of 1996 when it really kind of came together for me as a, you know, as a paradigm of discipleship. And that dramatically changed my preaching. Now, understand that since I didn't do feelings uh, prior to that, things like sadness and fear, and uh, I couldn't talk about that, my ability to enter into stories of Scripture was very limited. So, for example, I could preach on Psalms, but I had no understanding of, you know, David's incredible breath of lamenting, wanting to die, being depressed. I just couldn't really relate to it. Or the book of Job, uh, you know, his wrestling for 35 chapters with his uh, anguish in suffering. Uh, I didn't know myself very well, I, I, and so I didn't preach out of vulnerability and weakness. In fact, because I was so unaware of my family of origin's impact on me, my person, uh, in fact, I, I only preached out of my strengths, actually. Uh, and so discovering weakness and vulnerability in Scripture and beginning to preach out of that, was, was these were dramatic changes in my preaching. 
Um, in fact, we have a sermon store on our website at emotionallyleaded.org, and I encourage you to go look at them. There's hundreds of sermons on there, but I only I only actually posted on their sermons post-1996, and primarily because this the, my, my sermons were night and day, pre and post. Uh, and uh, you'll see some of the 10 distinctives that we're going to talk about here in these two podcasts, I think fleshed out there very, very practically. But then the third major phase of my preaching happened uh, in 2003 when I, I uh, moved into a contemplative integration. That is, I wasn't just reading about silence and stillness and monastics. I actually had that four-month experience uh, visiting monasteries around you know, North America and Europe and actually lived rhythms of silence, stillness, Sabbath, etc. And I began to develop a life of prayer as communion with God all through the day integrate stillness, silence, things like really meditating deeply on scripture, uh, really dove into church history on a more experiential level, learning from, uh, you know, the last 2,000 years in the church, uh, the Orthodox Church, as well as, you know, some monastic histories and going back to the Desert Fathers. And that really slowed my life down. And prayer became the center of my leadership. Uh, and that was a dramatic shift in preaching even further. Uh, in fact, Jerry would say that my preaching pre and post uh, both emotional health integration in 96 and 2003 uh, was so clearly evident. And my sermons were way more effective and transformative. And I agree. So let me just dive into this now. Let's get started with the first five of the 10 questions that I ask myself and others around preaching. That gives a window into what makes, well, I'm going to simply call here emotionally healthy preaching. So the first is this. Am I preaching for Jesus out of a life of being with him? So number one is this. Am I preaching out of a life of being with Jesus? It's easy to preach sermons about Jesus without really thinking about Jesus. In other words, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm working on the craft. I'm working on illustrations. I'm doing my study. But I'm not actually communing with Jesus in the process. Uh, and actually, I, I'm convinced the number one struggle in preaching is to actually remain anchored in Jesus, abiding in him, in loving union with him, before, during the process, while preaching, after the process. See, especially if you know how to build a sermon and you've done it for a while, you know how to do structure of a sermon, you can put it together with your eyes closed. And, uh, and you've got experience and you've got some gifts and you've done it for a while, uh, you can preach a sermon. But the question is, are you preaching a sermon out of a, a, a deep well of relationship with Jesus? See, we're not CEOs. We're not TED speakers. We're not doing clever one-liners, you know, for social media. Before anything else, we're, we're men and women who, are, who know God. Uh, and the gift we bring to the church is God. We, we bring the living God to our people out of our own relationship with this living God whom we know in Christ. So I can only bring what I've got inside of me. And so exegesis is, is important. But the question uh, I, 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 want, I ask myself is, do I have enough contemplative time around the text? Do I, have enough, do, I have, do I have enough time for this text, this truth, to sink deep into my soul and become part of me? I'm talking about the kind of time needed for meditating on that text, you know, Lectio Divina, almost... Uh, you know, memorizing it because you, you're, you're in it for such a long period of time as a result of that con prayerfully contemplating it. Now, I, I've had, you know, one of the challenges of pastoring and leading a church is uh, there's so much to do pastorally and leadership-wise. And, and so with all that to do, 
the sermon ends up getting squeezed in. Uh, and I've had you know time crunches with sermons. I know it well. And so then I've got to rely on my gifts and talents and biblical knowledge and personality and, and deliver that sermon. And most people don't even realize it. Uh, the difference of it of when it's coming out of a deep being with Jesus, uh, a sermon versus one that's not. But more mature people can tell. And I know what it is to boldly preach truths that were not in me. And to get up there and be talking about God is good and Jesus is risen and, you know, Christ lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. and uh, But not really being anchored in what I'm saying deeply and not being grounded, perhaps, is the best word. And, and it's almost like we say words as if they're magic spells. If I do an altar call like Billy Graham did it, uh, that people are going to come and come to Christ and and so I, it's like these words are magic and they help we help they impact people because what we're saying is true and it does have some impact but just because we heard someone else saying it doesn't mean it's what God wants us to say and it's going to have the same kind of impact through us and the key word for me is are, am I am I abiding in loving union with Jesus as a as my life right now as I'm preaching uh, am I living in oneness with Jesus? Because that's the biblical word of uh, knowing, right? Adam and Eve knew each other. That's the word for knowing God. It's intimate. It's not just head knowledge. It's slowing down our lives enough that he has direct access to every area of my life. And so Jesus doesn't say we can't lead or preach sermons about him without, uh, without, without him without him. We can actually do it. But what he does say is that unless we're abiding with him, unless we're in loving union with Jesus, John 15, 5, our efforts are not going to bear lasting fruit. You know, again, that's who we who we are matters much more than what we do or what we say. That's why I love Bernard of Clairvaux, a great reformer and uh, from France in the, in the uh, you know, 1100s. And he would not allow anyone to become an active leader, preacher in the church who was not first a contemplative. Uh, for him, that activity of preaching had to flow out of contemplation with God. And when one of his monks, Eugene III, became Pope, uh, he wrote him a scathing letter because his being with Jesus was not uh, grounded. He was sloppy with it. And now here was leading the church in the Western part of the world. And he basically says, you've got you've to adjust your lifestyle because you don't have the walk with God to sustain the weight of responsibility that you need. So that's why uh, it's so critical that you're building in and unbuilding in rhythms in my days and weeks. I'm monitoring that. Uh, days, weeks, quarters, years, so that my speaking for Jesus is flowing out of it being with him. And so that's why Sabbath is so critical. Uh, and and I, I remember when I made the switch, and it was 2003, where I was no longer negotiating on Sabbath, and mine went from Friday night at 6 to Saturday night at 6. Uh, and I'd, I let that sermon go, you know, early Friday morning or Thursday. And I didn't pick it up until maybe an, uh, a little bit on Saturday night and then Sunday morning, and then I was, I just, I let it go. And trusted God with it uh, because I realized it was way more important that I walked into that pulpit present with myself and present with God. Uh, it was Jesus in me that I was offering. It wasn't the structure or the great illustration to open it. It was Jesus in me. And, and that's my Sabbath of not thinking about the sermon was actually part of my sermon prep. That all of life is sermon prep. My relationship with Jerry is sermon prep. Uh, how I negotiated marriage uh, is sermon prep. So everything, vacation, recreation, your singleness, it's all sermon prep. But Sabbath it was key to be able to let it go for a 24-hour period each week. And again, you got to figure out what that might look like for you. But again, you're living rhythms. Uh, it's not being anxious about that sermon 24-7. And then secondly, it was the rhythm of my days of offices. 
where I really did move my prayer life from intercession uh, primarily to one that now the primary focus of my prayer life, still did intercession and confession and worship and all that, was communion with Jesus in, in the daily office, uh, you know, three to four times a day. And and where my life verse was was uh, Psalm 27, 4, as David said, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon his beauty and seek him in his temple. That that was, is, I believe, the first prayer of the preacher uh, for all of us. And my anxiety level changed around sermons, and they were a lot better uh, because they were flowing out of a deeper place of being with Jesus. So let me just illustrate this for uh, in three sermons that I, I mentioned, or I posted actually on this podcast over the last three to four months. Uh, I, usually, I usually try to post a sermon every four to eight weeks or something just to kind of break it up and give people a taste of it. And so one sermon was called Remember the Lion and the Bear out of First Samuel 17, and you can check it out. And it's David going up against Goliath. And Saul says to him, no, you can't go up against Goliath because you're just a boy. You're not able to do it. And David says, uh, the Lord who rescued me, your servant has killed both a lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And the revelation for me in that text, which I so took into my being uh, over time, was that David was able to look at his past, God's, his past victories that God enabled him to do over a lion and a bear. And even though Goliath was bigger, he'd seen God's faithfulness specifically, and he recounted it at a key moment. And I then did the same. I, I integrated that. I remember journaling uh, for actually quite a long time, uh, months, adding to my journal of how God had been faithful to me in so many ways over the years and come through in, in challenges. And then I had, at that point, some challenges in front of me. And I remember memorizing that verse, practice living it, and then I applied it to some new initiatives that were my Goliaths in front of me. Uh, and But it was that being with that text that actually made all the difference in my life. And a sermon I, I posted on, it's called Listen from Matthew 17, and where God speaks to out of a cloud in Matthew 17 to Peter, uh, as he wants to build three booths on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, the God, the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved son uh, whom I love, listen to him. And that word listen to him, there's nothing in the world more important than listening to him, because Peter's making plans without him. And, uh, and again, just meditating on listen to him, that this is the core of all leadership, the entire Christian life. It's listen to him. And um, again, letting that become part of my being, not just a head message. And then uh, and finally, a, a third sermon is I was, I was called Not Rushing, Lessons from the Life of Abraham. And you'll hear that once one of the podcasts back there from Genesis 16 and how Abraham and Sarah, out of their impatience, uh, at age 85 to 86, not wanting to look foolish, they launch an Ishmael, and they rush. Uh, and again, just taking time to ponder that theme of impatience, uh, looking foolish or like a failure and a temptation to make something happen. But again, you, you get this is number one, this first question I ask myself and again, any young preacher coming to me you know, about their own sermons and preaching. I'll say this, is, is my preaching, is your preaching for Jesus flowing out of your being with Jesus? in general, and then specifically, of course, around that text, if I have enough space and time to do that. It's incredibly difficult to do uh, with the pressure of leading and pastoring. It's one of, I think it's perhaps our greatest challenge. 
so the text is hopefully transforming us and exploding in us, and then we speak out of that. And I, I love Psalm 27.4. It is the great prayer of the preacher. One thing I ask of the Lord, to, this is what I you know, seek, that I may gaze upon the Lord and seek his face. I mean, that is it. And I love when the Greeks came to Philip in John 12.21, and they said, we would like to see Jesus. And that's that that little that little phrase is worth inscribing on your inner desk or your podium when you preach each week. Uh, the people are coming. We would like to see Jesus, and we want to bring them through scriptures that they might see Jesus. Which means we've got to see him first and be with him first. And because scripture is unlike any other book in the world, it's it, it's sacramental in a sense. It, it 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 carries us into an extra dimension. It leads us to communion with God. It's got a a. a power to it. It's a, a holy. It brings heaven to earth. It, 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 it brings us into God's heavenly presence. It's, and, and to be able to offer that to people to see Jesus, what, what, what a tremendous privilege. That's number one, uh, is my preaching, is it flowing out of my being with him? But the second is different but related. And that is, am I present to myself and to the people in the room? Am I present to myself and to the people in the room? It's easy to be to do so much thinking about the sermon because I'm anxious about how it's coming together, illustrations, flow, what do I include, not include, that I actually lose touch with myself in a sense what I'm feeling, what's going on in me, my, my body. And, and so it's possible to speak from a very cramped place, fragmented place, multitasking place, and our body's filled with adrenaline rush and anxiety uh, because not actually present with what I'm in. I've done it. Uh, and we get up there and we preach, but we're not actually centered. Uh, not just with God, but not with ourselves. And we end up kind of like going through our notes and saying things and sharing great truths. But we're not actually connecting with the people in the room, nor with ourselves. Our mind are on the sermon, not necessarily even the people. And one of the ways I know I'm in that place, because I'm getting insecure, I, maybe I might exaggerate in the pulpit, it's the kind of symptoms. I get loud and dramatic uh, for the sake of like trying to get through. And I mean, Jerry has said to me more than once, getting louder, Pete, doesn't change the fact uh, that you're still not clear uh, or you're not present with yourself or not sure what you're talking about. And when I'm not present to myself and set, you know anchored in God's love, I, I'm insecure and I get paranoid about how I did in the pulpit. And we have to, I have to run to three or four other people. How did I do? You know, and, and, and it's easy to end up feeding off the audience, not of God. And we end up preaching out of a reflected self. In other words, I find out I'm, I'm, I'm preaching for me because I want feedback that I'm okay and I'm doing a good job versus I'm just, I'm anchored in God and I'm, I'm bringing Jesus to people as best I can. Now, I want to get feedback, but I'm not getting my sense of self from that feedback. And what's sad is it's easy to use people in our preaching. We can end up using people to whom we're preaching to. That's why, again, we want to be present to Jesus, number one, and present to myself and the people in the room. Um, now, I, I, I just want to make a little note of this about perfectionism because it's possible to over-prepare for a sermon as well. It ends up coming from a shadow place in us where it's an over-concern of what people think of us and, and having to get it perfect. And, uh, you know, I'm human. I make mistakes. You're human. You make mistakes. All sermons are imperfect. Uh, I, I, God's in that, I believe. It keeps us broken. Uh, perfect sermons, uh, like perfect people, you know, I, I something's off when we're, when we're thinking that way. I, I, I think there's just... Uh, perfectionism... Uh, and not that we don't do the best we can in our prep, uh, but there is a place of letting it go and offering it to God. There are, there are lows and fishes. And uh, that's we're present to ourselves. And then we're present to the people in the room. 
it's easy to be preaching and not see the people in the room because we're so self-absorbed in the actual content. But to actually look at people and see them and love them. You know, God loves them. They're his sheep. And listen, getting your heart in a place to love people covers a multitude of sins. And it, when I say taking the time to get your heart centered to love people, it can everything from beforehand praying for them, not just yourself, but when you stand at the preach, <clears throat> just taking a moment and seeing people before you begin and, and, and loving them, you know, with the eyes of Jesus, uh, it just wins every time. But you know you've kind of crossed the line in, in, in the shadow of, of your preaching when you're overly concerned about their affirmation after you preach. And you cross the line from kind of passionately preaching to maybe yelling. Uh, or you find yourself angry or frustrated when you're preaching, not actually loving or seeing the people in front of you. Or you, you, you move over a line of exaggerating or spinning or telling half-truths, kind of for impact. and Or dropping names of people you've met or maybe accomplishments or big words or... You know, or, or you spend uh, too much time focusing on being clever or smart or finding this incredible illustration rather than letting the text you know, transform you. Or, you know, you know you're crossing a line of being present with yourself when you're, when you're preaching about things you're not living. Uh, or, or if you aren't living them fully, you're able to say it honestly to people. We'll get to that in a few minutes. Uh, or using your preaching gift inappropriately to get a response from people rather than using your gifts to appropriately to move people to Jesus, which is a, a different use of that gift. So, all right, that, those are the first two questions. They're, first, they're two big ones. But the third is this. Am I allowing the text to intersect with my family of origin and culture? Am I allowing the text to intersect with my family of origin and culture? Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever done a genogram of your family of origin, uh, but a genogram is a... Is a graphic way to look at your past relationships and your family going back three to four generations uh, and how it's impacted you today in every area of life. And we do that as part of our EH discipleship course, uh, part one and two, um, that we're bringing to churches around the world. But there's also a leadership level application as well of Genogram. And it's a kind of a lifelong, it's a lifelong journey of knowing yourself to know God. And every leader and pastor, especially any of us who are speaking and preaching, need to dig, we need, need to dig into our family history so that we can really be aware of how it's impacted us and our culture that we're living in. Because our family system, nothing has defined us more powerfully than that system in those early years. And remember, the Israelites came out of 400 years in Egypt, uh, and our people are living in Western culture, for those of you listening to me in, uh, in the West, uh, you know, we bring that culture to bear as well to text. And, you know, we like to say, Jesus, we live in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. It's all in your bones. And so when you're bringing a sermon, bringing a, a message from scripture to people, uh, you want to be able to have that message pass through, intersect with your own family of origin and culture. That's something I never did prior to uh, 1996 and EH discipleship. And so, for example, in my family, I had, I had millions of miles of negative scripts and tapes in my head uh, you're no good, you're a loser, you're a mess, don't do it. Uh, and so in my head, I knew I was beloved, I was loved, but, and, and I could walk out the ser- walk out of that, you know, end of a sermon, and nine people say it'd be fantastic, great job, but one person would say, that's an awful sermon, and it would just devastate me for the day, because I knew in my head grace, but I still was living law because it was in me. But I wasn't able to share that struggle at all with people in a very practical way, because I wasn't in touch with it myself. 
or I'd be, I'd be preaching on, I would talk about slowing down or rest, but I didn't have any sense of the depth of the workaholism in my own generational history. Uh, or I preach on faith when, because of the chaos of my family of origin, I, I had such a need to control, but it was coming from a deep place. And again, I, I was just, every text intersects with our family of origin and the culture in which we're living in. And without insight into that and how it's intersecting with your family and your, with yourself, you're bringing a, you can't bring a depth to that message and a nuance to that message. And that's why it's so important that we have mentors and people more mature than us, therapists, others who can, you know, I consider spiritual direction and mentoring and uh, therapy. This It's like part, it should be part of our theological education because it it, it helps us go deeper into texts and uh, where we consider how our past, for example, impacts our present. And as we're healthier and more whole, we're, we're better preachers. Uh, you may not be aware of it, but you are. And every text I preach passes through this, how does it intersect with my family of origin and culture? And so, can I come from a family, Italian-American family, we didn't trust anybody, uh, not just other races and cultures. We just didn't trust people. And uh, it was a deep, deep family way of looking at things and looking at life and uh, very pessimistic. My, my pet family, my mom was just, just pessimistic. And I remember after, do, you know, first getting into EA's discipleship and reading the story of Joseph in an entirely different way in, in Genesis because I realized, oh my gosh, Joseph didn't get bitter. The guy just saw the sovereignty of God working in through and in spite of all this trauma and losses and uh, betrayals, amazing. Uh, and I just was able to see for the first time, oh my gosh, like that is the exact opposite of how I live. And I wasn't even in touch with how in my ex extroverted friendliness and warmth, which appears, and I can be very full of faith and one of my gifts is faith and optimistic there is an underlying theme of pessimism that can kick in there and it brings out the worst in me and it comes out of my my mother's voice and it's it was so deep in me but i never realized it and um or even sadness just to to feel sadness it, it was i i just my family never did some you know vulnerability and i would just cover over things and nobody was to see your dirty laundry and it just blinded me to certain texts and Again, that's why it was just so important that, um, you know, I want to encourage you to be getting, getting into your, uh, your own, you know, family of origin work. And that's why the Emotional Healthy Relationships course, the spirituality course is so core. And because uh, we want to create a culture and we as leaders and preachers and our teams take a deeper dive in that. And actually in a couple of weeks, we're going to be releasing a team experience uh, on Genogram for you. And you'll hear about that in a couple of weeks. And I want to encourage you to get that and download that when it becomes available in two weeks. Here's the fourth question uh, to ask uh, in, a, in a distinctive emotionally healthy preach against this. Am I preaching out of my vulnerability and weakness? Am I preaching out of my vulnerability and weakness? I was taught in seminary that you should preach about weakness because it helps you connect with people. Uh, in other words, it was, it was a strategy. Uh, the advice went something like this. Make sure somewhere in that sermon you talk about your weakness because then people can connect with you and know you're just one of them. That is not what I'm talking about here, about preaching out of vulnerability and weakness. In fact, if that's what you're doing, please don't. It just cheapens the whole word of vulnerability or redefining it. Uh, up until 96, 1996, I, I preached out of my success, period. I used illustrations of weakness, but I never really let my weaknesses come through. 
but that gigantic shift, nothing probably marked it more than leading out of vulnerability and weakness. It was gigantic. Uh, it changed everything. Uh, I was scared that people would listen to me if they knew how weak I was. But of course I was wrong. In fact, it turned out that was always the best part of the sermon for people. And, you know, when Paul says my power is made perfect in weakness, when Jesus said that to Paul, he meant it. Uh, it's really in the Bible. His power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul was talking about preaching out of a sense of real, genuine, authentic weakness, not cliche. And Paul boasted in it. And But it's just so tempting. It's so opposite our culture uh, to do that. And uh, people are always going to try to make us spiritual experts and pin their hopes on that. Uh, that's why it's so important that we're grounded in our own weakness uh, so we can reject that foolishness. We're as weak and vulnerable and broken as anybody that we're speaking to. And so what does that require? It requires that uh, you know, we really let texts, again, go into us. And let's go back to the ones I mentioned earlier that on earlier podcasts, remember the line in the bear, where I, I, on a personal level, I, I could think through about how I have not, when I didn't rely on God's past faithfulness to me and was afraid and crippled, and I shrunk back from leading or taking initiative, and I hurt a lot of people around me as a result. Uh, and being very specific around that, or listen uh, from Matthew 17, that, that sermon of, of really letting myself sit with the fact of how often I've made plans without God and not listened to him, and how incredibly what a te- tendency it is for me. And uh, everything in me just wants to just think it through for God. And, and, and when I haven't, what a mess I've made. And then ru- not rushing, lessons from the life of Abraham in Genesis 16, where I've rushed and created chaos in the book of Judges. And uh, and not listening. So, and then finally, last one is, am I allowing the text to transform me? It's the fifth question. Am I allowing the text to transform me? That sounds simple, but it isn't. If you're preaching sermons, you're not being transformed by them, I wouldn't expect a lot to be happening in your church either. Uh, one of my first, if not the first question, I will ask a person who's going to be preaching. I'll say, what is different in your life as a result of this text? How is it applying to you personally, specifically? For example, if you're preaching about the storm, what storms are you in now? Tell me about it. What does it mean for you when Jesus says, be still? What are you doing differently this week from last week? How is Jesus speaking to you? What adjustments are you making? How, what struggles are you having in actually doing that? But that application is, uh, is a first, one of the first questions I'm going to ask is, how is that text transforming you and how is it transforming me? Uh, and again, how, how are you listening? Because and, and I see the sermon as you're coming at that one application of transformation for you, and it's probably going to be what you're going to be bringing to the church as well. Uh, you're coming at that one truth from 10 different angles. And again, our, our approach to preaching, the manner in which we approach it, it's creating a culture. Uh, and that's why these questions are so important. So I, I, I've given you five here. Am I preaching for Jesus out of a life of being with him? Number one. Number two is am I present to myself and the people in the room? Number three, am I allowing the text to intersect with my family of origin and culture? Number four, am I preaching out of my vulnerability and weakness? And number five, am I allowing the text to transform me? Uh, again, we create culture as we begin to live out these, these questions. And uh, let me invite you, if you've never downloaded that free ebook, uh, Six Marks of a Church Culture That Deeply Changes Lives, go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash churchculture emotionallyhealthy.org slash church culture. It's free, download it, because you want to be that culture. And these questions are a way to begin bringing that through your very preaching. Thank you, everybody. It's been so good to be with you. I so look forward to part two uh, on these 10 distinctives of emotionally healthy preaching. God bless you. Be with you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.